Blog Talk Radio. This week, the issue of criminal justice reform, who goes to prison in America, hit a kind of critical mass with action from President Obama in Congress and on presidential campaigns. As part of our Broken Justice series, our Lisa Desjardins lays out the reform movement that both Republicans and Democrats are pushing, and which some in law enforcement want to push back. It was a symbol intended to spark sweeping change. The first ever visit by a sitting U.S. president to a federal prison. President Obama's walk today through the El Reno facility outside Oklahoma City capped off his week-long push on what he calls a broken criminal justice system. These are young people who made mistakes that aren't that different than the mistakes that I made and the mistakes that a lot of you guys made. Monday, the president commutes sentences for 46 drug offenders. Tuesday, at the NAACP National Convention in Philadelphia, the president speaks to the racial disparity within the prison population. African Americans and Latinos make up 30% of our population. President Obama is adding his voice to a bipartisan call for reform of the criminal justice system. Today, Republican presidential hopeful and New Jersey Governor Chris Christie released his plan to educate prisoners. If we're going to incarcerate people, then we should make them do something productive. I should sit around and watch TV all day. One solution is to require inmates to try and get their GED before release, so they have some minimum qualifications. Reforming criminal justice is on the radar of nearly all those who would be president. In the past few months, 18 of the current 20 presidential candidates have argued have for argued some kind of change. Kind of Up on Capitol Hill, ideas have made it into a group of bills that are moving towards floor votes. A House Oversight Committee hearing this hearing this reviewed a number of reform proposals, including a bill sponsored by Senate Republican John Cornyn. It costs $30,000 a year to incarcerate an individual in prison and less than $8,000 to keep them released custody like home like finance. Watching the hearing, Mark Holden, a lawyer for the Republican mega-donors, the Koch brothers. They're also part of the movement. Coke Industries, along with Target, Home Depot, and Walmart, have all banned the box or removed questions about past convictions on company job applications. It is the latest move in decades of debate over how to stop crime. Today, there's a new epidemic, smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. The emergence of crack cocaine in the 1980s and the war on drugs led to widespread lock-em-up policies for drug offenders. Democrats were also tough on crime. President Clinton's 1994 crime bill lengthened sentences for nonviolent criminals while pouring nearly $10 billion into prison. The result of the number of people behind bars skyrocketed from 500,000 in 1980 to more than 2.2 million today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to AJC Radio, where we are dealing with an issue tonight 
in regards to criminal justice reform. And I'll tell you right now, uh, this is something that is huge in America. If you have your window open tonight and perhaps you feel a breeze going by, something is sweeping through a nation and we call it criminal justice reform. And I'll tell you right now, tonight we got some heavy hitters. Uh, Attorney, uh, I'm sorry, criminal justice investigator Charles Milstead will be joining us along with former CEO of Quest Communications, Joseph uh, Naccio, and also we'll be having a legend of criminal reform. Uh, He's been on this program before. We welcome him back tonight. Uh, Mr. Bernard Terrick, former NYPD commissioner, and so many things on his resume. It'll take two shows to go down that list. But uh, tonight we step off and take a look at the importance of criminal justice reform. Hang in with us. Be right back. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Lamont Banks, along with Charlisa Stewart, Cliff Stewart. And tonight, again, we dig into criminal justice reform. How are you folks tonight? Doing pretty good, Mont. Doing good. All right. And uh, I'll tell you right now, folks, uh, this gets pretty serious uh, as we look at problems in our nation right now, hot topics on Capitol Hill. Uh, in every arena, as you heard on the clip, uh, President Obama speaking to it. Uh, taking a different look, a different approach to what is going on in America. And Cliff, as we get ready to dig into this, uh, how important, from what we've seen as an organization, uh, is criminal justice reform right now in this country? Well, it's on the top of every one list. You go to Congress, you look at what they're doing. They, uh, criminal reform, judicial reform, and prison reform are on the top of their list because they're seeing that not only does it waste taxpayer dollars, it throws people behind bars for decades and decades, giving them no chance at a normal life. It disrupts families. It disrupts communities. It basically breeds a, a, a whole nother criminal by throwing people behind bars for these petty offenses. And so, you know, uh, Congress is on the right track. I think the yeah. president is on the right track. His administrative, his administration is saying, hey. We need to do away with all of these uh, crimes, all of these people be, being put in prison for, you know, things that it's no good law enforcement reason. Like former, uh, the former DOJ, Eric Holder, sure. <laughs> was, well, Inspector General, not Inspector General. Attorney, uh, Attorney General. Attorney General. There you go. Yep, I'm losing it. But he stated, you know, that we've got all these people in prison for no good law enforcement reason, and it needs to be changed. And so, you know, every everybody is on it. I think it's the right track. And uh, I am very eager to see, you know, what all Congress does during this session to ensure that we get that criminal reform. Well, it's very important. And Lisa, you know, we, we've talked to several members of Congress, uh, and I'll tell you what, uh, they're not short of conversation on this issue. No, they're not. It seems to be right at the, just like Cliff was saying, it's at the top of everybody's priorities right now. Uh, the congressmen, the senators, everybody's focus is on making a change in this in this in this area. Well, you wonder why, and it doesn't take too long to turn on the TV, having your morning coffee, to understand that America's criminal justice system is in disarray. And uh, again tonight, we got some legends and champions of folks that are out there. And you know what? I'm finding out, Lisa Cliff, it's not that difficult. Uh, to reform the prison system. It's a matter of getting in there and fighting. And you know what? How many negative things do we have to see before we get the clue 
that it is necessary. It is not something we're just doing, well, let's just try criminal reform. We got black men being shot in the street by officers. We have the, uh, the justice system. We have judges sitting on the benches bringing racial disparities in our courtrooms. So, you know, President Obama made it very, very clear. The percentage of people that are minorities, excuse me, that are minorities occupy prison cells. That's right. And he made a point, and we're going to have some clips tonight. Folks, you want to hang on to your seat because I'll tell you right now, uh, this is going to be interesting, but this is the stepping and the key to, to changing the nation in the way we look at things. And until we make some changes, folks, I'll tell you right now, uh, nothing is going to change. We're going to get ready to go to a break. Coming right back when we do come back, we will have, excuse me, excuse me, we will have uh, criminal investigator Charles Milstadt will be joining us. And again, later on in the program, uh, we will have Joe Naccio, former Quest CEO, uh, and uh, also Bernard Carrick, a former NY, NYPD commissioner, uh, security specialist, if you will, uh, everything special. There's so much, again, to say. We're going to hear from all of them when we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, it's criminal justice reform tonight on AJC Radio, where we take a look at bringing about change. We'll be right back. This is AJC Radio. Stay with us. Do you have a big brother? Well, I have a big brother, and I'm pretty sure that you and I experience some of the same things with a big brother. Big brothers will always be big brothers, right? I'm sure you'll agree. Well, my brother gets up in the morning. He takes a shower, heads to work, and at some point during the day, he's going to exercise and get that workout, as we all do. And, of course, depending on what's going on, he's going to sit down for two or three meals during the course of his day. And also, depending on what else is going on, he'll probably get caught up on current events and maybe take a few moments to turn a page in a book. How about your big brother? Some of the same stuff, right? Oh, did I mention that my big brother does all of that stuff, but he actually has to have permission a lot of times before he can do it. You see, my big brother was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit. That's right. That may sound shocking, huh? He's in prison. Wrongful convictions impact families in ways you cannot begin to imagine. But I've decided that I'm going to do something about it. And I extend an invitation to you to come on board and join me in this fight. You see, I'm helping to be a voice for my big brother and others who have been wrongfully convicted. We'd like you to take a few moments today and call a just cause where we fight for justice. You can call us toll free at 1-855-529-4252. That's one 855 529-4252. Join with us as we fight for justice and for all big brothers across the land. We have a big problem and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties. 
even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where tonight we take a look at criminal justice reform. Before we go there, uh, Lisa, a disclaimer for our listeners, please. Yes, we just want to remind everyone that we're not attorneys and that a just cause does not provide any legal advice. You want to contact your personal legal advisor for all of your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or AJC Radio. And as always, thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend time with us this evening. All right, Lisa, thanks for that. And um, again, ladies and gentlemen, criminal justice reform um, is something that's important. It's on the minds of the American people. Uh, and we are honored tonight to have a very special guest, our first, first of three guests, which will be with us tonight. Uh, criminal investigator uh, Charles Middlestat is joining us tonight and had the privilege of uh, talking with him and uh, sharing and hearing his vision and we're going to let him talk to you tonight as we get ready to dig into a subject that is on the minds of America. But not only um, American people, congressmen, leaders are asking the tough questions. And uh, it's time that those answers be provided. And I think one of the sources of those answers is our very special guest, uh, uh, Charles Middlestead. Charles, how are you tonight? Charles, you there? I'm here. Oh, welcome to the program tonight. We appreciate you and... Uh, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear us? Okay, fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Good evening. Good evening to you, and we do appreciate you taking some time. Uh, and I, I'm going to just, if that's okay, address you as Charles. Is that all right? Absolutely. Okay. And, uh, Charles, as, as we had the opportunity to speak uh, a couple weeks ago uh, about your vision of criminal justice reform, the need for it in America, and sometimes the simplicity. Uh, we make it more difficult. I was in training years ago for uh, sales jobs, and I, they used to give me a, a, a uh, statement called KISS, and it's, it, that means keep it simple, stupid. Uh, I Correct. think we've, got, we've gotten too out of the way of that, uh, and we, we've overcomplicated things. So uh, I'm going to let you uh, introduce yourself to the people, uh, talk to our listeners about what you're doing, the importance of criminal justice reform as we get into this great dialogue tonight, uh, a subject that needs to be uh, heard all across this country. So Go ahead, Charles, as, as we get ready to get into this uh, discussion. Fantastic. Well, I, I certainly appreciate uh, the opportunity. And, uh, and you know, this is a topic that I'm very, very passionate about. I've been practicing uh, criminal defense investigation now for over 20 years. It's, it's what my entire practice is devoted to. 
And so my, my day, uh, my life day in and day out revolves around uh, working with defendants on their criminal cases uh, coast to coast, um, mostly, uh, almost exclusively um, felony defense. And so really my views on um, the reforms, quite frankly, are apolitical. They don't really come necessarily from a defense perspective. They're more, uh, they derive more from just having a front row seat to the criminal justice system over the past 20 plus years. And um, also as, you know, as a citizen, a citizen of this country. And uh, there's been certain observations, certain things that I have, patterns that I have seen over the years that have repeated themselves over and over. And this is really what has um, led to this fire within me burning that um, was just crying out to do something. So there's been years and years of research that I've personally done, and, uh, and I've had an opportunity to talk to virtually everybody within the criminal justice system from, from one spectrum to the other, be it uh, prosecutors, cops, judges, experts, um, defendants, really everybody involved in every aspect, every prong of the criminal justice system. And so the reforms that that I am advocating the reforms that are desperately needed. These are not revolutionary by any, by any stretch. Um, what's most alarming is the fact that here, in some cases, a couple of decades after we've discovered these flaws that exist, that we're still talking about them and they still have not been corrected. The reforms have not been put into place. And um, it's really unconscionable. And so Let's just take the first, the most obvious one, and this is a flaw that exists within the criminal justice system. It is universally identified as the leading contributing cause to wrongful convictions. Everybody agrees on this. This is not middle stats theory. This is every, um, every legal um, scholar in the country, every uh, justice project within all of our fine universities and higher learning institutions. I mean, this is this is very basic stuff here. And that issue is um, faulty eyewitness identification. We, we know that to be the leading contributing cause. It is a factor in 75% um, of all wrongful convictions. And we know this uh, positively. This is not theory. This is based upon an examination of exonerations that are uh, factual exonerations. These are not theoretical exonerations or exonerations that have resulted from some technicality in the law, but we're talking about exonerations that um, were the result of um, DNA evidence. And so that is really one of the primary um, primary benefits, aside from the obvious exonerations, and, and uh, Lamont, I know yeah. as an exoneree, you, you certainly appreciate that, but Aside from, for instance, you take the, the Innocence Project, there's roughly 400 exonerees nationally since the, uh, since the advent of that project. But it's really the statistical analysis, in my view, that aside from the, the, those benefits, is the, the real value there. And so in looking at those 400 plus or roughly 400 cases of, uh, of exonerations, you can come out with two compelling statistics. The first is that in 75% of those exonerations, Faulty eyewitness identification played a leading role in that uh, wrongful conviction. And the other is um, that in 15% of those cases, and this really kind of shatters a myth that the public has, but in 15% of those cases, those 
um, defendants actually pled guilty to offenses they did not commit. And that really shatters this notion that people would never plead guilty to an offense they didn't commit. I mean, that's kind of the general perception. Why would anybody do that? And that would sure. lead us, you know, that leads us in a whole other discussion. Well, I'll tell you this, uh, Charles. Uh, you know, we did a show, I believe, uh, not too long ago about uh, the faulty identification. The, But I believe this, and give me your thoughts on this, Charles. When we're talking about criminal justice reform, it starts from the arrest all the way into the decision and the sentence. Uh, I believe that it starts at the time that a district attorney decides to pursue criminal charges against an individual. Now, to me, that's a major issue because a lot of cases are brought that should have never been brought. Uh, folks are brought up on charges, and when you say eyewitness identification, which I think, and, and you said that's your passion, that's the realm in which you uh, are seeking uh, answers, uh, I think that's critical. And I, I tell you, I told the folks here, I believe on that program in regards to a, uh, a lineup that was done in Ohio with a bus driver and his wife, uh, that were accused of molesting children. And I actually saw the report on television, and the parents were actually picking up their kids' hands and pointing at who they wanted to be guilty to be. The fact that that was even allowed in a police station, and that the DA is walking in and out saying, okay, come on, you're, you're, you're in this daze. This cannot honestly be real. Uh, those folks were yeah, sentenced to yeah. almost 30 years to life for that. Your thoughts on that type of behavior in this system, because it, it's it's happening everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it, uh, you know, it's, it, there are some really egregious um, examples, uh, and you just cited one. But yeah, really, this starts from it starts about the, before the charging decision, and so. That's why law enforcement plays such a critical role in this. So if I'm a police officer and I am responding to uh, a report of a, a crime and I'm investigating that, my, you know, my training is going to be critical in how I conduct my investigation. And with regard, and by the way, you know, eyewitness identification is just one of several flaws that exist and where there are very common sense reforms. It's just I choose to focus on that one since that one single-handedly is most responsible for Absolutely. wrongful convictions, right? So I would say, you know, instead of muddying the waters and, and rattling off 10 other ones, let's get that one done and then move on to the next one, right? But as sure. an example, and then so we, we look at the Michael Brown case, and this is, you know, here's a, here's a kind of an angle that no one's really discussed in the Michael, uh, Michael Brown case. So what we talk about is um, – yeah, obviously, the Officer Wilson's conduct and the fact that uh, Michael Brown was unarmed and so forth, and, and it, it screams for the need for law enforcement to have body cameras. In fact, I did a, an op-ed on that shortly after that whole incident. And so the, the thing about what it, what it also screams for and it highlights is, if you recall, immediately following um, that incident, there were all sorts of eyewitnesses that came forward in that case, and there were tremendous disparities in their recall as to what they saw. Some some folks saw one thing, and some other folks saw something different, right? And so what that highlights is the fact that eyewitness testimony can be very unreliable. And, and, it, and it all depends. There's so many factors that go into that as to where 
somebody might have been standing, as to what the lighting conditions might have been, as to whether there was some cross-contamination that occurred. And cross-contamination is, uh, testimonial cross-contamination is essentially, you know, it, it's, it's my, it's when my first-hand recollection, my first-hand observations get contaminated by maybe some other bystander that I heard describe what they saw, and then they, the two collude, and now I can't really, I start adopting what they said as my first-hand observations. And so there's a lot of stuff going on there. But what sure. it really highlights is the fact that why do we want to rely on a police officer's version of what happened when we don't have to rely on it? When the simple implementation of body cameras would eliminate the need to rely on less reliable testimony, right? And so, so it's, it, 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 I mean, that's, that's the thing that screams about this. And so that gets into a whole other issue. It's like, it's obvious that the, the, the public, everybody benefits. I mean, it's a triple win, right? The officer benefits by having a irrefutable um, memory, uh, irrefutable evidence as to his conduct, her conduct, what occurred. There, it's, there's no question. Um, the, the public benefits from that. We know statistically that with, uh, within departments where they have implemented this technology, that instances of excessive force and complaints against officers, et cetera, are, uh, go down dramatically, dramatically. And so there are obvious benefits. The question is why? You know, why would we not? Why would every agency in this country not already be using that technology? And, and, and the only thing you can look at as far as the answers are, it, you know, it's financially motivated. And so where is the money going? And if you look at this, and this, this is, again, and I, and I know you guys have talked about this a lot on your shows, but, you know, we have this phenomenon of the, the militarization of law enforcement. There's this attitudinal shift that has taken place. Quite frankly, you can, you know, the, the federal government is responsible for it. It's not, it's not a conspiracy. It's not something that they did intentionally. That you can look at the kind of the, the beginning of that trend um, following 9-11. There was a lot of federal money that was doled out, and, and legitimately so. I mean, we were suddenly faced with different, a different sort of threat, different adversaries, and suddenly the federal government started throwing all sorts of money out there. And so that money was was given to local law, local state law enforcement agencies to get bigger equipment, better equipment, more sophisticated military type equipment. And so yeah. that started the shift. And then, quite frankly, the, really the, the thing that's probably most responsible for it is once we started pulling out of some of these conflicts like Iraq and Afghanistan, we had tremendous amounts of inventory sitting over there. I mean, we have tanks and armored personnel carriers and and um, assault rifles and night vision and all sorts of ballistic gear sitting over there. And rather than maybe go warehouse it for our next conflict or give it to some of our allies that we're already giving money to, what we do is we, we create this um, program where we create a military surplus program. And I, I would allege, quite frankly, that this program is something that is, has resulted because of the defense contract lobby, the defense, you know, the, all these defense contracts who sure. lobby their government, they want new orders. And so it wouldn't, it wouldn't benefit them for us to be putting all this stuff in a warehouse only to use it later. What they want to do is get new orders. 
So I think they have a great role in, in lobbying for this military surplus program where they, we, instead of making, putting this stuff to good use, we give it to law enforcement. And, and so what happens is now you look and you have these rural law enforcement agencies out there that, um, you know, they may have 12 officers, but they have a tank and they got an armored personnel carrier and they got assault rifles and they got, I mean, they look just like the soldiers on the battlefield in Iraq or Afghanistan or any other part of the world where, we're, where we have a presence. And mm. so it's, it's, you know, it's impossible for them not to start adopting that kind of attitude, right, where it becomes, their, their tactics become more violent, where their attitude shifts. They start, they're, they're, so, no, they're no longer involved in community policing. They're soldiers, but their battlefield are the streets of America in their minds. Okay, so Charles. I think, go ahead. No, no. So I, I just I think that that's how we got to where we are. Sure. Um, you know, is is this point where instead of instead of doling out money, I mean, I I think that the federal government always has a role in making grants available to local law enforcement agencies for gear that they may not be able to fund. But but instead of tanks, we should be supplying them with body cameras. Instead of tanks, we should be supplying them with good um, video recording equipment so that when they conduct custodial interviews of suspects that it's all recorded on videotape so that we don't have to rely on some officer's version of what he says a, a, a suspect told him during an interview, right? We don't mm -hmm. have to rely on what his report, his handwritten narrative um, may relay of some account of a witness. We don't have to rely on an officer's account of how a particular eyewitness made that ID and how certain they were or uncertain they were about the ID, right? And so well, yeah. that's where it would be, the, you know, the money would be better spent. No, absolutely. And uh, I think from the situation with the um, Mr. Scott down in South Carolina where the officer dropped the taser, Right, uh, right in front of them. Uh, the bizarre part about that, I think, the people who are opposing this, and, and Charles, you make a good point. Why then is this not implemented nationwide immediately? Because if I'm doing well, my job, if I'm doing my job and I'm doing what needs to be done, give me a body camera, Charles. We got a caller that I believe has a question. Uh, Cliff, who is that? Yeah, we got uh, David from Georgia. Uh, and David, you go ahead. You have a question or comment. You're live. David, you with us? Can you hear me? Yeah, we hear you. All right, well, good afternoon. How you guys doing? Doing well. Well, listen, I'm listening to this whole situation that's going across the country about this judicial reform. You know, when you look at it, it's headlined by one word. It's called corruption. This is why the judges, the DA, and police officers have been doing this for many years and been getting away with it. And the problem is we don't have an outlet when a situation or an investigation or arrest is taking place. Um, it goes through the process of arrest. The, you, you're jailed and bond. If you can post bond, the district attorney make charges. And your only recourse to this whole situation is after the conviction or sentencing, if it's not dismissed, is that you have to go through the process of, of an appeal. We're talking about people's lives. We're talking about expenses that most people don't have to fight in the appeal process. And it's dragged completely out. And if we don't have an outlet, uh, that is a, a real big problem. And I can give you a quick rundown of a very close situation that I have. I got a situation where here where 
uh, Child Protective Services. That's another agency that needs to be wearing body cameras because there's a lot of false allegations that they've made throughout the years. And if you look through the news media, a lot of stories are popping up of, of lawsuits and uh, people, kids being taken taken wrongly. But here's a situation where they come into my home without a search warrant. They uh, arrest me, detain me. I was threatened to be shot by several officers. They take my kids without even a, a, a court order. This is all caught on my surveillance camera. Ultimately, when the cops find out about this, they came back and falsified an arrest warrant for child cruelty charges. They came into my home, took guns that I purchased with a gun. I have a guns permit, a uh, concealed carry permit that I purchased. Every weapon in my house legally, legally, legally purchased them. I'm not a convicted felon. To this day, I'm being charged as a convicted felon for guns I purchased legally just to detain me. A judge has said uh, he's not a felon. Drop the charge. I have a district attorney right now in the state of Georgia. Uh, almost 60 days later, still charged me as a convicted felon when I'm not a convicted felon. It's my a Fourth Amendment. Uh, I believe it's the Fourth Amendment right to bear arms or the First Amendment. But anyhow, uh, sure. I, I'm legally have the right to possess and carry a firearm but yet i'm being alienated and charged with their very same right because i'm and i'm not a convicted felon but it's all about a corrupt system when you talk about corruptness and, and social reform for this system you got to get to the root and give people an outlet because in my situation when i've gone to the gbi i've gone to the governor i've gone to my senator my congressman the local fbi and you cannot get no help what is my next outlet because as of right now i don't have one i feel like a real criminal trying to duck and dodge the judicial system and law enforcement just to clear my name of wrongful doing by a corrupt judicial court. So in this case, what kind of reform can be put in place to help people just like myself? That's my question. Well, absolutely, uh, David. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you right now, and we thank you for your call. Um, you know, this right here is a tragedy. Uh, Charles, I'm going to get your comments on this because this is a man that is uh, – uh, following the law, he has the right to bear arms. He has that right, and for somebody yeah. to go and do Charles, what, how do? What is the next action for this man? Well, uh, let's. I mean, to be to be clear, we, you know, we don't, uh, um, David. You 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 were, I think, pretty eloquent in trying to relay a whole lot of information in a very short period of time, but. You know, it's very, very difficult to make any kind of intelligent comments on this without knowing all the facts. Right. Sure. And, um, you know, there, there's a number of reasons why weapons get taken away. And listen, I, I think what this, this type of situation calls for, and, and clearly David is frustrated by the system, um, but what it highlights is the need for transparency. And sure. the more transparency we have, obviously, the better off we are. I honestly am very, very hesitant to ever throw out words like corruption because, quite frankly, I just don't believe. I, I think our system certainly has plenty of flaws. There's no question about it. But our system is fundamentally sound. Um, if you go around the world and you look at other systems of criminal justice, um, there are systems out there that you can very easily label as being corrupt. Uh, our system works most of the time for most of the people. The problem is for the ones that it doesn't work for, it has devastating consequences, and it sounds like David may be one of those folks. And, sure. and so I understand why he may throw out words like corrupt. But you know, I, I've I've been in courts almost from from coast to coast, and you know, it's like anything else. You have you have some excellent judges, you have some excellent cops, you have some excellent prosecutors who are well intentioned, they're ethical, 
um, and they're very professional, and then you have some that aren't. And so sure. that's where the transparency comes in. And then no, we're, without- you know, for, to, keep, to keep those folks held to account. And so you, you have different bodies that, that um, are responsible for handling and complaint against a judge, depending upon whether you're dealing with a Superior Court judge, a federal judge, et cetera. In fact, there's just been some reform with regard to complaints made against federal judges. And now those complaints and their dispositions are required to be posted on, um, on the website, on the Department of Justice website. That's a great reform that creates more transparency. On you know on the um, on a local level on the level that David's referring to, there are some avenues there for filing complaints. Cases almost every case I get involved with as a defense investigator, any law enforcement officer that has some kind of leadership role in that case, as a matter of practice, I always issue an open records request for that officer's post records, which is the peace officer standards and training council records, to see how long they've, they've been a law enforcement officer, where they've worked, and then I also subpoena or do an open records request for their uh, internal affairs file and for their personnel file because there sometimes are um, complaints on file and sometimes there is a documented history. And by shining a light on that, you can bring about change. And it's really a responsibility because it holds everybody to account. It changes behavior. If they know that they're going to be scrutinized, it changes their behavior out there on the streets. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Charles, uh, and and my thoughts for David is this. uh, You know, I think when you live through the system individually and you have suffered corruption, you have suffered injustice, uh, that position changes a little bit. And I think Mm -hmm. if David is feeling that, now for me, one that was wrongfully convicted in the state of Colorado did seven years in prison for a crime I never committed. Uh, my position is going to be a lot different. My passion is going to be a sure. lot different because I have sure. lived the injustice. So though we no have question. a system, we said this last week on the program, that the system itself is not the corruption. It is the people that sit on the benches and sit in prosecutor offices who pursue these types of things and do these types of things that must be held accountable. Going to your point no as question. far as the body cameras, I think it brings a huge step in accountability. Uh, and I think the, re- the only way you get resistance, and we've gotten resistance about this across the country. A lot of people say, I don't want the body cameras. The question is, as Congressman Rangel said, you have to ask the question why. And these are the tough questions. And I'll tell you right now, uh, David, you have to keep fighting. You have to keep pursuing members of Congress. Whatever it takes to get justice legally is what you have to do, and that is that is getting down in the grind. There, there are re- there are remedies out there. Absolutely, I mean, there are remedies out there, and, and um, they're, they're, it's not hopeless. Um, if he fights, you know, here's the thing: is that, you know we have the the fifth and the you know the fourteenth amendment, our due process. These are we got the Bill of Rights, and and the, you know where the thing about it is we are entitled. To due process, it, it's it's a it's a promise that is given to all Americans, um, and I always say it may be the most difficult promise to keep, because Absolutely. if if you look, um, you know, at everything that has to happen in order for due due process to, to realize itself, you know, we have a system that 
on paper is actually you know pretty well laid out. The problem is that it is administered by human beings, and these human beings are imperfect, and they have sometimes uh, you know their own personal motivations, their own agendas. Well, and so, if you look at a case from start to finish, from and when I say start, I mean from you know the moment that a that a, a crime is committed or an incident is reported, from the the cop that uh, you know initially responds to it, to the crime scene investigators. To the the DA that that looks at it and prosecutor that that presents it for an indictment, to the defense attorney that defends it, to the judge that presides over the case and makes rulings on that case, to the jury that ultimately um, hears the case and, and renders a verdict on it, and in the case of a conviction, to the the attorney that handles the appellate options and the judge that presides over those appellate options and all sentencing issues. So. All the way to the finish. The chances of every single person doing their job exactly perfectly is almost impossible, right? And well, so, and I, yeah, and I agree and, with and that. That's where, that's where there's so much room for error along the way, and yeah. you have to force the system, you know, to work for you. And and let's be honest, there are absolutely two systems of justice in our country. There's, there's for the haves and the have-nots. You know, if you're a affluent. Uh, person and you can afford the best attorneys and the best experts and investigators and jury consultants and um, uh, uh, you know every other expert from um, pathologist to look at a case from um, you know every every forensic specialty that may apply to a particular case to refute evidence you're obviously going to get a different Outcome. Um, result outcome than than someone who has to be represented by the public defender. I mean, the public. Listen, I know a lot of PDs out there, and overall, these are very professional, very well-intentioned folks. The problem is they are understaffed and overassigned cases, and they will tell you that they simply don't have the time to devote to their to their clients that that, that they need to. They just and don't. Look, they have too many look, cases on their caseload. And let me say this, Charles. Uh, we're going to we're going to take a quick break. Uh, I presume you're going to come back with us. We do have our other two guests coming back. Are you willing to stay on online with us tonight? A- absolutely. Okay. And and one moment, Lisa. You had a comment. Yeah, uh, Charles. I just wanted to just chime in just for a minute. Um, it's very. It seems very evident to me that you have a a, a passion for what you do. And uh, I hear you talking about uh, or a little earlier about uh, the system. Yeah, about the way the system works and. Uh, I, I think I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna be one of those people that throws out there those things that you don't like to do, that you, you are not quick to do, and say there's a lot of corruption. I, I believe there's a whole lot of corruption, and I wish that we had known you back during the time when the IRP six case was going on, and that you could have investigated and you would have seen some of the most corruption sure. in a in a courtroom that I mean, like I've never seen before. And I've been in court a few times. I've I've seen a lot of different things. But I think uh, you, even with all your years of experience, would have probably been shocked by the level of corruption that was there. But your passion oh, to drive you is just yeah. it's a, it's phenomenal. Lisa, I, I don't, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not blind to the fact that corruption does exist. It's just I, I don't paint the, the, the criminal justice system in this country with that kind of brushstroke because I don't believe the system at large is corrupt. Are there right. instances of corruption? No question about it. I've seen that. I've seen that plenty of times. Yeah. Is there, you know, is there a prosecutor who 
has an agenda because he wants to run for you know DA next year. Is there um, you know are there cops that um, that perjure themselves because they don't want to be embarrassed because they did a lousy job? Absolutely, that happens. And but Charles, by and large, yes, Charles, sir. we're going to get we're going to come right back to that point. We have. Uh, second guess, he's limited on time tonight. We're going to go ahead and bring him on right now. Uh, we're not going to actually take a break. Uh, so, so Charles, we're going to get back into that conversation. Uh, right now, we're going to bring on Bernard Carrick, uh, a dear uh, friend uh, of mine, a wonderful person making some big impacts and some presses towards criminal reform that can speak to it as well. Uh, Bernard, are you there? Yes, sir, I am. Thank you so much, Bernard, for joining us tonight. And uh, I understand you're limited on time. Just let us know, and we'll definitely let you off the hook here. Uh, but thanks for taking a few moments tonight out of your busy schedule to discuss something that we're discussing here that we've discussed before, the need for criminal justice reform. And that is based upon the, in my opinion, the horrific actions that have happened in this country uh, over the years and how we have progressively gotten worse in a system, again, that's, that was built to, to render justice, but it's missing the mark quite quite frequently these days as we've t- taken a look at that. Uh, can can you give us your thoughts on that, again, on, on that limited time that you have to be with us tonight? Well, I, I think it's a couple things, you know, and I've, I've been pretty adamant about this. The, the system today sort of contradicts its own mission statement. We're taking people that have committed regulatory or civil violations or uh, ethical violations, and instead of holding them accountable through a regulatory process, and I'll give you an example, a commercial fisherman catches too many fish, instead of fining him, suspending his license, taking his fish, something, holding, right. him, holding him accountable in some way, we don't do that. What we do is we charge him with a crime, we put him in prison, we take his business. Everybody on his boat loses their job. His wife loses her job. He goes to prison after 18 months. He comes out, and he can't never work again. He can't never hold that license again for the rest of his natural life because he's now a convicted felon. Um, I've met men. I met a, a guy that sold a whale's tooth on eBay. We're taking hunters that use the wrong ammunition or shoot the wrong animal. We make them convicted felons. And then we go into urban America where we take these young black kids out of Baltimore, Washington, D.C., or whatever. They get tied up in some conspiracy case uh, on a low-level, first-time, nonviolent drug offense. And we hit them, hit them with a 10-year, 15-year sentence. Now, I know there's people that may listen to this and say, well, they're dealing in drugs. They, they deserve what they get. I'm not saying they shouldn't be punished. I'm not saying there's not there shouldn't be alternatives to deal with them, for, especially if they have drug addictions. But what we do, we take that nonviolent kid, we stick him in a prison for 10 to 15 years, mm-hmm. and then by some delusion, somebody in Washington thinks that's a benefit to society, when in reality, all they learn in prison is, is how to steal, cheat, lie, manipulate, gamble, con. And most importantly, they believe when they get out, that a verbal altercation should end in a beatdown or somebody getting cut. Well, that's that. In my, you know, that's not what I want back in my society. That's not what I want in my community. And there's ways to deal with this stuff long before they put they put these young kids in prison. Um, we've evolved into a society right now where we are seizing 
you know, there's there's civil assets forfeiture. We're seizing people's per- personal property without a criminal conviction. Now, I, I used to do this for a living. I've locked up a lot of people. I put a lot of people in prison. I've seized tons of tons of cocaine, millions in drug proceeds, and I seized property. But I could never take somebody's property unless it was used in the commission of a crime or it was purchased as a result of the commission of a crime. Today, that's not the case. We seize people's property, and regardless of whether they're convicted or not, it's nearly impossible for them to get that property back. So there's all these things, and I heard so I heard one of your your uh, your speakers talking about corruption within the courtroom, and and I have to agree with whoever got on uh, during that conversation. They said, you know, they don't think it's systemic. I don't think it's systemic either. I don't think there's systemic corruption in the courtrooms, and I think for the most part, prosecutors, whether they're state or federal prosecutors, I think they have an extremely difficult job to do. They have a courageous job to do, and for the most part, they do it well. But historically, over the last 10 years, we have seen a substantial increase in prosecutorial misconduct, in people suborning perjury, in people extorting, uh, you know, using extorted testimony, um, and and doing things that are outrageous should never be done in a courtroom by people that are sworn to uphold the law. You can't break the law to enforce it, and that is increasing every day in this country. And at some point, you have to hold the prosecutors accountable. And I think one of the main ways to do that is to eliminate this this sort of sovereign immunity where they're immune from prosecution or any kind of civil uh, retaliation if they go out and and they break the law to enforce it. You know, I don't think there's a worse crime in this country than to deprive somebody of their freedom wrongfully and intentionally. You know, the the power of a prosecutor is enormous. It's It's beyond anything anyone could imagine and when you take that power and you use it for the wrong reasons you know for some political or personal gain and you put somebody in prison as a result wrongfully and intentionally or you know you you have these selective and political prosecutions i got news for you it's wrong and it's got to stop sure and and i agree with that uh absolutely and i think because and uh, Charles uh, is the gentleman you were referring to as far as the corruption. Again, I believe, I think here's the problem. I think you make a good point, uh, Bernard, in regards to there's no greater thing that a prosecutor can do of punishment than to deprive one of their liberty. That is, that is the issue. And when you yeah. do that, I think that's why whether it's one person or two people, uh, and like you said, over the last 10 years we've seen they trend with these things. Right now... Um, we have Joe Nacho that wants to make a comment on this discussion, and we welcome him tonight. Mr. Nacho, how are you this evening? Mr. Nacho, are and, you with um, us? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you it. now. Thank you for joining us. What You wanted to comment on this. I was just getting ready to give you your grand introduction, <laughs> uh, but the conversation's heated up, so come on, throw in what you want there. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I don't need a grand introduction, but thanks. Uh, I, I, was, I wanted to comment. On, I was listening to what Bernie was saying a minute ago. I wanted to comment. Um, I, I, think, I think what Bernie said is true about uh, corruption in the uh, criminal justice system, the courtroom. But I do think it's much more profound than 
we're giving it uh, credit to it, meaning I think it's more systemic, and I think it's been growing for the last 20, 25 years. Um, uh, there's no there's no throttle, there's no governance of the prosecutorial side of the system. I'll speak more on the federal side than the state side because that's where I got involved. Um, federal prosecutors literally get away with anything they want to get away with. You saw it in the Senator Stevens case where they actually uh, suppressed uh, exculpatory evidence. And a federal judge, when that case came back to him, uh, you know, threw the case out on Senator Stevens, and then he admonished the Department of Justice to deal with their problems. The Attorney General of the United States, after three years, turned a blind eye. This is where they had a federal prosecutor's court cold with subordinating justice, and nothing happened. It happens all the time. And the reason for that is because, like in any system, what drives that system is power and money. And all you have to do is look at where do federal prosecutors, U.S. attorneys, go after they have a successful case. They all jump to the private side, they jump to the big firms, and then they try to defend the people they, well, for the similar type of crimes, they just put people away. So it's a built-in career path. They know about it in law schools. They know about it in the best law schools. It's about money and careers. So they, they completely suborn the whole idea that the purpose of a prosecutor is to seek justice, which is what the ABA says about the role of a prosecutor. And, and I think this system is, is so infected with money, careers, and power that it's almost impossible to solve it a problem at a time. You, know, you almost need a, a major reformation, and you're not going to get it for the simple reason that the people who pass the laws, particularly the U.S. Congress, mostly are lawyers. Sure. Well, uh, sure. yeah, Lamont, and, and you know, one thing he's right about, that the mostly they're, many of them are lawyers, if not mostly, but the reality is they are scared to death, the Congress, whether they agree with us or not. And I will tell you, I will tell you that most people in the judiciary would agree with a lot of what I'm saying, a lot of uh, what the other speakers are talking about, that most of the guys in the judiciary will agree privately, publicly, they're scared to death to look like they're doing something soft on crime. So they won't change anything. And on the prosecutorial misconduct stuff, the, the one thing uh, he's right about is that these guys, um, it, basically, they just go on and do this stuff, and they're never punished. I mean, less than 2%, less than 2% of the cases where it's determined a prosecutor was engaged in misconduct, less than 2% is admonished in some way. And I'm not talking about they lose their job. I'm not talking about somebody puts them in prison. I'm just talking about they get a slap. Right. Um, you know, I, I find it appalling that a prosecutor, a state prosecutor or a federal prosecutor, you know, and I, I've said this, I, 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 I constantly talk about this because I... I don't think there's anything worse than a government like ours that promotes and preaches democracy and freedom mm -hmm. and liberty and all the stuff that we learn in civics as we're coming up as kids. All that stuff we promote, I don't think there's a worse thing in the world for a country like ours to not, um, not uh, defend uh, people's liberties and freedoms 
as much as it pursues justice. And, and it's supposed, these guys are supposed to pursue justice. They're supposed to conduct investigations, and they're supposed to determine right and wrong. But they, that's not what they do. They well, target... Even, they, uh, Ber- Bernie, as you know, it's, it, it's even worse than that, because 98% of the cases where there's a federal indictment happen and get settled through plea bargains. And what that means is you, and there's reasons for that, which I can go into, but what that means is that you have unelected bureaucrats, federal prosecutors, in a closed-door back room outside of public scrutiny deciding as not only the prosecutor, but also as the judge and also as the sentencing agent. Okay, And the reason people are taking those deals is because the penalty, the trial penalty of going to trial, and that's what, that's what jurists now call it, the trial penalty. Exercising your constitutional right will guarantee 99% of the families in this country that they'll be bankrupt before they go through the process, and if convicted, they'll get a longer sentence. So the, the stack is, you know, is weighed so heavily on the favor of the prosecutors that you've, you've suborned the whole issue of equal justice or blind justice or the fact that you have constitutional rights to due process. So, and, and, know, you, and Lamont, Lamont, you know, as as for what he's saying, you now have federal judges. You have Judge Rakoff in New York. You mm-hmm. have uh, Kaczynski out in California, who chief judge in the, in the Ninth Circuit, I think. These guys continually, continually, are talking about this. And and I'll give you, I'll let your listeners, you know, just think of this one thing. Give me a give me a a government agency, or give me a company public company, private company, anywhere in this country that has a perfect, stellar record. There is none. There is none with right. the exception of one. It's the Department of Justice. That's you have right. a 98% conviction rate. Wow. You, you have a, about a 97% conviction rate based on pleas, and even the ones that go to trial, that 3% that go to trial, 98 to 99% of them, they get convicted. And, and he's absolutely right. I know people that judges have sat up in the courtroom and said, you know what, that's a hell of a price to pay for exercising your constitutional right when a prosecutor asked for 10 times the prison time on a punishment that he would have taken in a plea. And and that's well, what well, happens. Well, God, if you go to trial, you're devastated. To make okay. Bernie's case, they asked for 430 years for me Wow. But they offered me a plea deal for 18 months. I told them I wouldn't take it. Okay, they asked for 430 years. That's what the indictment asked for. They were willing to settle for 18 months. I said no, went to trial, unfortunately lost, and got 72. That is, uh, that, so, is that is so insane. And I'll tell you this, folks. Uh, uh, Bernard, I know you have to go. Is that correct? Yeah, You're I'm going to get going, guys. Okay, Mr. Nacho, are you able to come back with us after the break? Oh, yeah, I'm here. And Charles, are you still with us? Yeah, I'm still here. I'd love to comment because uh, I, I echo a lot of what these guys are saying. Well, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we're going to get you that opportunity to echo to America these sentiments. Mr. Carrick, thanks for joining us tonight. Coming back with us. Thanks, ladies and Thank you. Take care. And ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Uh, this explains why criminal justice reform is needed right now in this country because the conversation is just getting started, and we are in-depth in this conversation, and we're going to come back with Joe Nacho, 
and also Charles Middlestadt, uh, criminal uh, defense investigator. And uh, we're going to dig more and more. And folks, hang on to your seats. Right now in New York City, 70, 76 degrees and cloudy. Los Angeles, 81 and sunny. But in Colorado Springs, 62 degrees and cloudy. Sounds like the temperature of fall is setting in across the United States. We're coming right back, folks. Hang in there with us. Tonight, tonight's topic, criminal justice reform. What in the world is going on and what needs to happen? We're going to dig further. We'll be right back with you. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855 855- 529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A Just Cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Do you know what this means? Do you? It means you can voice your opinion without censorship or restraint. It means you can say nothing at all. It means you can debate, protest, question, contribute, whenever, wherever. Take it. Embrace it. Say it out loud. Bart police officer who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Grant footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only going to make it worse for us. They killed our young black You can protest, you can try to make a change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and that we're aware that stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice, and making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live and get along as one. Violence is not just Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Picture this, a 75-year-old man convicted of murder waiting for his trial to finally go through. He's been on death row for 25 years now and finds out he's been wrongfully convicted and is completely innocent. Not only does this mean that 25 years of his life have been spent in jail for no reason, but that the actual murderer could still be out there right now. The bad thing is that this exact thing happens more often than you think, but you can help stop it by supporting our campaign to abolish the death penalty. Today, we we gather in recognition of the fact that although our laws and procedures must continually be updated, 
Our commitment to the cause of justice must remain constant. From its earliest days, our republic has been bound together by its really extraordinary legal system and by the enduring values that define it. Now, these values of equality, of opportunity, and of justice under law were first codified in our founding documents, and they are put into action every day by leaders like you, the talented men and women who learn at great institutions like Georgetown, learn what it means to be a steward of the law and an advocate for those whom it protects and empowers. Now, although the issues on our agenda this morning and this afternoon are difficult and at times divisive, the diversity of this crowd and the panelists and members of Congress that you're going to be hearing from is a testament to the fact that criminal justice reform is essentially not a partisan issue. It's about providing legal professionals and, and law enforcement leaders with the 21st century solutions they need to address 21st century challenges. It's about shaping a system that deters and punishes crime, keeps us safe, and ensures that those who pay their debts have the chance to become productive citizens again. Most importantly, it's about answering fundamental questions about fairness and equality that determine who we are and who we aspire to be, not only as a nation, but as a people. A people resolved to move forward together and committed to implementing criminal justice policies that work for everyone for everyone in this country. This is the challenge, but this is also the extraordinary opportunity that brings us together this morning. Now, it's the same challenge that drove me roughly one year ago to launch a very targeted Justice Department review of our, our criminal justice system, to identify areas for improvement and to make this system as efficient and as effective and as just as possible. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen of America, back with you here on AJC Radio, dealing with an issue very important to the American people, to our nation, to our leaders, as we look into criminal justice reform. And joining us tonight, we've had the honor and the privilege to have Mr. Joseph Nascio joining us on the phone tonight in, uh, for this conversation, and also criminal defense investigator Charles Middlestadt. Uh, uh, two folks, I believe, who have a very clear knowledge of the reform that's needed in this country. And uh, we're going to give them the carpet to talk and, and to get in this dialogue. And uh, folks, uh, welcome back with us, Mr. Nacho and uh, Charles. Thank you for joining us tonight on AJC Radio. Pleasure to be here, Lamont. Thank you so much. And yeah, Charles, you, you wanted to comment. Let, let me give you the floor I, first. I, I did. And... Uh, you know, a lot of what both uh, Bernard and, and Joseph were, were referring to, yeah, I, it's exactly what I've experienced in my career. Now, Joseph's experiences, you know, within the federal system, I've, I've had probably 30 or 40 percent of the cases I've done over the last 25 years have been within the federal system. And it's, you know, it is a completely different system than any state system out there. I mean, the federal system is uh, a massive infrastructure and whenever you are charged with a federal case with a federal crime you are literally facing the full weight and resources of the United States government it's not like a state case everybody operates at a higher level the AUSA's operate are high these are much sharper folks not to say that state prosecutors are not but there is a clear distinction between a federal prosecutor and uh, state prosecutors. Federal prosecutors wield uh, incredible power. And quite frankly, I, I tend to think 
less on the corruption side as far as that and more on the arrogance and the um, power. It's more uh, intoxication with the power, I think, that a lot of USAs and a lot of USAs actually out there um, are uh, contaminated with because they know they wield this tremendous power. They know that they can launch a... Uh, they have all these resources, uh, the IRS, the DEA, the FBI. They have all these massive federal government agencies at their disposal. They don't have budgets for their cases. And so by the time they bring charges, they, th- they have things pretty well wrapped up. And as, as Joseph alluded to, you're already there, there are certain things that are automatically punitive within the federal system. You get three points for uh, non-acceptance of responsibility by going to trial. If you take a plea, it's all based upon the, the sentencing is based upon a guideline system. And if you take a plea, you get three points off for what they call acceptance of responsibility. Automatically, that's gone. And so that is, is, is one of the issues. But also, you know, these federal judges have lifetime appointments. They are immensely powerful. And they have the ability to depart upward on the sentencing guideline. And so even though you might go to trial and you may be charged with six counts and you're only found responsible for one, a judge can say, a federal judge can say, hey, listen, I know the jury only found you guilty of that one count, but I sat through the trial, and I think you're, you're guilty of all five, and I'm going to depart upward, and I'm going to punish you as if you were convicted of all well, of these counts. No, and I, that's, uh, and Mr. Nacho, I'm going to give you an opportunity to chime in. I wanted to give you an introduction. Ladies and gentlemen of America, Mr. Nacho's career uh, in the telecommunications industry began at AT&T, where he worked for 26 years rose to the positions of both president of business and consumer communication services. Uh, he left AT&T in 1997 to become the chief executive officer of Quest Communications International. In 1999, he also assumed the responsibility of chairman of the board of Quest, a position he held until June 2002. In 2001, he was appointed by President George Bush, W. Bush, to be chairman of the National Security Telecommunications Advisory Committee. And also in 2001, he was asked by former FCC chairman Michael Powell to chair the Network Reliability and Inoperability, uh, if I pronounced that right, committee. <laughs> Forgive yeah, me. you got folks. it right. Uh, I got that right. Mr. Nacho, please go ahead and uh, your response to, to Charles and, and, and give us a little insight of, like, you, you know, you, you made it clear, it's more uh, at a, a horrible level than what we're dealing with. Is there a reason you're in your yeah, opinion? It, it is. It is. And yeah. by the way, all of all societies struggle with this issue. Uh, I want to just go back a little bit in history. You know, in 1846, uh, the famous Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky was imprisoned by Tsar Nicholas II and sent to a gulag in Siberia. He wrote a famous book after that. It was called from the I think it was called the from the Halls of the Dead. And he said a famous quote that applies to us today. He said the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. So I would broaden that a little bit. I think the degree of civilization can be judged by entering its criminal justice system. And yeah. this is what uh, Charles was saying a minute ago, and I think Bernie was alluding to. When, when you have the ideals of our Constitution and the ideals of our Republic regularly prostituted inside of that criminal justice system, for whatever reason, and I wouldn't go into all the reasons, um, sure. you've lost the kind of shining beacon of what this country was about. 
A fourth of the U.S. population, male and female adult population in this country today, this is Department of Justice statistics, a fourth of the population, one in four, have been arrested and or fingerprinted. Okay? Now, we also know, as in my case, that you know, we have government surveillance organizations with technology watching every one of our moves. Okay? So if a fourth of us have been fingerprinted already, much less convicted, if we have them doing universal surveillance, and if we have the technology out there that is more and more intrusive to our personal lives, and you have a central government that's all-powerful, you can't go up against these guys, okay? And you have laws that are written that are so vague and so broad that you don't even know you're breaking them, then what you've essentially created is a 21st century version of fascism. In other words, the folks in power can get anybody, anytime they choose for breaking a law. And the system is so onerous that nobody can defend themselves in it. So the illusion that we're a land of the free and home of the brave, okay, particularly land of the free, and secondly, that every person has a right to be judged by a jury of peers, is now all mythology. Now, yeah. when that starts breaking down, as we have more and more of us experiencing it, whether you're you know, a kid from this unfortunately from a ghetto who never got through school and gets caught up in the street drug trade, or you're a white-collar CEO, and you can be ensnared in that same system at will, you have a disrespect for the rule of law. And that's what you see going on in this country right now, a disrespect for the rule of law, because everyone thinks the laws have now been rigged. Okay, And you see it whether you're a minority in the central city, you see it whether you're a a white-collar guy who didn't know he was breaking a law. You see it whether you're an illegal immigrant, or an immigrant, I should say, I use the word illegal because they're even less uh, attuned to our system. Okay? And when you have a breakdown of the rules of law, what happens? What happens? Every society where you've had a breakdown of the rules of law eventually degrade into some form of social anarchy. And, you know, sure. I think that's the path the American uh, system is on right now. Oh, but and you, when you... you we, no, go I'm ahead. Sorry. Finish your, finish no, your thought. I was going to say, and then when the people who are in power get caught doing something wrong, this, their colleagues turn a blind eye. Look, my federal judge, we talked about all-powerful federal judge. My federal judge from right in your state, a guy named Edward Nottingham III, okay, 10th District out there, got caught up in an investigation where it was reported that he coached prostitutes on how to answer questions when the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals was investigating him. That's called obstruction of justice and witness tampering. The U.S. Wow. Attorney in Denver, the U.S. Attorney in Denver at the time, a guy named Troy Ide, turned a blind eye, didn't go after him at all. You or I, doing the same kind of witness tampering, would face 10 years in a federal prison. This yes. judge got off, they didn't even, and the Colorado Bar Association didn't even take his law license away. So when you have this duality where the people in power kind of one hand you know, rubs each other's back, okay, remember most federal judges used to be lawyer, all lawyers and used to be U.S. prosecutors, okay, you've got this system where you no longer believe in it. And then when sure. you have this system where the federal government is surveilling all of us and can nail you at will, you, you tell me if, 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 if Hitler's Germany and Stalin's Russia – wouldn't be envious of the tools that our federal government has in order to put us in prison if they at will. Wow. And when you when you look at it, I mean, you 
you look at not only that the, these prosecutors and judges, instead of them, uh, instead of misconduct being looked at as an abuse, they use it as a tool against the American people to say, I can do whatever I want. And just like you said earlier, Joe, and then there is no there is no accountability. They have blanket immunity. You can't go right. after. And well, then they, that's, that's, that's not entirely true. Well, you can't go. True. You I can't mean, go listen, I was involved. I was involved. Um, I helped defend a federal judge here in Atlanta, who was uh, an 11th Circuit judge who was ensnared in a in a case, and and he was sentenced, and, and um, he obviously is no longer on the bench. So there's not this blanket immunity per se. I mean, I, listen, I understand why Joe is certainly a little more cynical than I am. I mean, he has had a brush with the federal system. Um, he's had a very, very negative experience, and I agree with 90% of what he's saying in terms of his characterization of, um, you know, the federal court system. I mean, it is. It has draconian sentences, and as the as the statistics bear out, I mean, just look at the, the conviction rate. Uh, if you are charged with a federal crime, you are screwed. I mean, uh, it will it will break you, and that's uh, uh, that's a that's a given. Most people can't afford to um, defend themselves against federal charges, and so they're um, relegated to uh, you know a criminal justice appointment. And now I will say I've worked with plenty of lawyers that do CGA work, and there's some very very um, skilled lawyers that that do that, but they sure. still face the same obstacles that the federal system presents, and that is just the overwhelming resources that they have, and you have different rules of discovery. I mean, in the state system, you know, the prosecutors are required to turn over discovery well before trial. It's, uh, you know, in the federal system, literally, you get discovery as the trial is proceeding. You, you find out the day before who they're calling the next day, and you may get a 302 on some, uh, you know, on some witness. A 302 is, uh, you know, is an FBI uh, report of investigation, and that's the first time uh, in the case that you actually get to learn of what, um, you know, what that FBI agent is relaying that a, uh, a witness allegedly said to them and what they may be testifying to. You haven't gotten a chance to yeah. really prepare. You haven't gotten a chance to interview them. You haven't gotten a chance to background them. So, you know, there are tremendous obstacles. And that's right. why and that's why people opt to take a plea because it's a burden to hand. It becomes a business decision, and nobody wants to risk um Going first of all, losing the three points for acceptance, and then putting their fate in the hands of a federal judge and the sentencing guidelines at the risk that he may or may not depart, or she may or not depart upward. Um, they very seldom depart downward, and so it's a daunting, you know, prospect. Right. Well, you and, know, and you know, I was, I, I was thinking, Lamont, if you want to solve this problem, we should tell the next hundred thousand guys or women who get a federal indictment to go to trial. You will clog up that system and break it, okay? Yeah, exactly. Uh, because um, once you put it all in the public eye, either Congress is going to increase the budget for the judicial system by a hundredfold, or you're going to have some reform on the fact that we have so many laws. I think Bernie Carrick was talking about this that really around the civilized world are civil in nature that we've criminalized in America. That's the overcriminalization of America, where you know, everybody's breaking the law every day. And it's now at the discretion of the government as to who they want to prosecute. So, well, I'll right. tell you, you know, I'll, go ahead, Joe. Uh, I just no, I was just going to say, you know, 
I believe, you know, there's an old saying, a fish stinks first from its head, okay? So wow. I think if, if you want to reform this system, you've got to go right after the central issues. And that's the issue of sovereign immunity for prosecutors who, when they do something wrong, get away with it. That's the mm-hmm. issue of overcharging. Look, when you stand in front of a judge or a jury, whether it's state or federal, and they charge you with ten times as many things as you really did, the first thing that goes through a juror's mind, you know, let's skip all the bullshit that they go through voir dire and you know, they, they're really going to be uh, sincere and open-minded. When they hear the United States of America against John Smith, and John Smith's charged with 12 things, the first thing that goes through their mind is, maybe he didn't do all 12, but he must have done something. Okay? The prosecutor already is going to win. Now, you want to solve that problem? When, if the government charges you with 10 crimes or 10 counts and they win on one, let the government refund to you 90% of your defense cost. Okay? That was low. Let, let, let the, let, let's level the playing field. The, go, the prosecutors yeah. have unlimited Great money. idea, Joe. will never happen. Okay, well, 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 let me tell you, that will never happen. <laughs> Sovereign immunity will never happen. Okay? Here's, Reforming here's, here's of the fact that, that you have a rotating door between the, the Department of Justice and big law firms, that will never game get fixed. their rules, they're, they're not going to change them. So, no, but, but it shouldn't know, be I mean, here's, their here's game something their that, rules. You know? It shouldn't be their game and their rules because it is a system that is supposed to be set for justice for the American people. So well, their game, their rules, that is where the problem is. And we, we have a, a caller that wants to make a comment. And, sure. and just before we bring the caller on, to Joe, to your point and, and to Charles' rebuttal, you uh, – if somebody like Joe Naccio, the CEO of the largest uh, communicate, telecommunications company in America, did not have enough money to defend himself, then something is wrong with the system. We'll give you a chance to and, talk about yeah, that in a moment. We have the uh, Truth on the Line wants to make a comment. Uh, and Okay, and we, we're going to... Yeah, we're just having a, a little technical difficulty. All right. Uh, go ahead, Truth, you're live. Yes, thanks for taking my call. I was listening to Mr. Nachos, and I thought to myself, even, I don't know exactly what what went down with that particular situation, but this is what really baffles me, is that you got a CEO of a company, and you're going to tell me this corporation, as large as it is, or was, that now you're going to pick one man out of all of those people, and you're the guilty one. You know, that's what really benerves me about this government. It's like we're going to come after you. Now, there could have been 15 or 20 or maybe a 1,000 other executives that did something wrong, but we're not going to bother you right now. We want Mr. Nachos. So for some reason, it is sick in this country. When people become successful and they can go forward and they make things happen, there's always somebody who wants your head. And now, I truly did think, and I I, I regret that I was that naive, but I had never been a, a victim of the system. But when they did it to my son and my son-in-law and four other guys that were IT executives who had a business, had been to Homeland Security on several occasions to demonstrate their software, Homeland Security now tells them that we want you because what you have is what the government is looking for. 
But but after my sons and all these these guys worked themselves to death up all night long, and 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 my son-in-law spent ten years of his life working on this software. And by the time you get to the point that you have finally got it finished, and you was at NIPD, and they wanted it, you were in, you were over, you were homeland security. I don't know how many times. Homeland Security calls you and tells you that we need this software. We want one module. That module was $100 million. They called them and said to them, okay, uh, uh, we are going to put you into the budget for $100 million. Well, two weeks later, you got 21 FBI agents raiding that little small African-American business and you got them shoving people back in the room. And you know what? I don't think anybody is going to feel this until you become a victim of it. When I taught my children right, I'm the mother of all of them really to a great extent because I'm a pastor as well. But when I saw what the government did, you know what I told my kids? You don't have to worry about going to jail. And if something happens and you go to court, you just present your evidence. What we didn't know is that that judge sitting on that bench has the authority and power whether she lets the jury hear what you have to prove that you did not break the law. I was so overwhelmed. Our church was overwhelmed. Come on, this is not what America's like. Does this really happen in this country? Yes, it does. And so when I hear Mr. Nachios and I hear Charles, he's making excellent points. And Mr. Nachios, he feels it. You know why? Because they stuck the knife in him. You know, you can be across the room. You'll never know what I feel because you didn't get stuck with that knife. But once they make you a victim of the system, and they and you, and I don't care what you say, I'm telling you, some changes must take place. And you know what? I, I I don't know if, if I agree with, with Charles on this, that it's never going to happen. I'm a person that believes if you get enough people fighting for change and, and their voices become one in this country, we are going to see some changes, and we've got to see some. Because I'm telling you, if these people are not finally accountable for what they're doing to the American citizens in this country, rest assured. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. It's about we're overcrowded. Let the innocent people go home. But all this stuff, my sons and my and these other men sit in prison now for three years who worked their rear ends off, and, I, and they were IT professionals. And you stand up in front of a, in front of a jury and tell and talk about them and, and show them that they're thieves and they're this and they're that, which wasn't true. Then when they stand up to say, this is who I am, uh, uh, you can't do that here. Your character's not on trial. Of course it's on trial. You're calling me a thief and a liar and all these things? That's my character, thank you. So surely, Mr. Nachos, my heart goes out to you. And I'm telling you, nobody in this country will ever be able to understand it until you walk in those shoes and get behind and see behind and see what's behind that wall of the so called justice system, I say it sucks. Something needs to be done about it. It it bothers me that I have to go every week to see my son who should be living his life 
and you've taken him away from his family and some of the other guys, good men, church, good Christian men. I know, I've been knowing these men for 20-plus years, and I saw how they worked themselves to death. I saw that. And the bottom line is that that makes me sick inside. So, Mr. Nachos, I truly, truly feel your pain and what you went through because I can tell you, with a corporation that big, you are not the only man that they, that, that if something was done wrong, and I don't really know the story, but if something was done wrong, it just what Mr. Nachos come on. All these executives at the cop, all of them that work together, you're just going to pick me out and give me 430, 430 years in prison. I'm not going to even live more than likely. I won't live to 100 if I do, I'm lucky. But 430 years? Yeah, no, yeah, chapter 430. They asked for 430. Wow. That's uncomprehendable. Yeah, you, well, you know what? You, you know what? A, a chaplain told me in the prison where I ministered that he said to me, he said, I will never understand why they would give a man two or three life sentences. I don't don't understand. He said, what they're doing, they're taking away hope from these men. He said, nobody's going to live two or three lives. We got one life to live. So what's what's the purpose? Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, caller, it's it's part of a strategy. It's, It's designed to make the odds so overwhelming that it compels a plea. And, and that's exactly what happens, is nobody wants to face that kind of time. Obviously, nobody can do 430 years, but that's typical, that's typical tactics of prosecutors by overcharging cases, and it, and it renders people hopeless. And they look at yeah, it and they say, I can't possibly do that. And by the way, I'm, I'm, an advocate, I'm an advocate and a big believer in change. I was, my comment about what's not going to change is the federal government is not going to refund um, your, your, your legal expenses if, if they don't get convictions on all counts. But, you know, I've devoted myself to bringing about these changes, and that's, that's what we can be hopeful about is that changes are possible and changes have come. And, in fact, changes in eyewitness misidentification are happening on a state-by-state level, but it's happening way, way too slow. And ultimately, with all of the passion that we have espoused tonight, you really have to get to the nuts and the bolts of what's really wrong with it. And you got to start getting into, you know, the, the lack of, um, of lost evidence and the failure to memorialize interviews and, and transparency and discovery and prosecutorial misconduct and flawed science and ineffective assistance of counsel. I mean, these are all the the actual root causes of the flaws that contribute to wrongful convictions and, and bad outcomes in cases. And, you know, uh, I, let, me add, let me just add to what Charles said a minute and what your last speaker did. Uh, you know, your last speaker touched on a couple of very important points. Uh, one is the, the total shock people are in when they, get, uh, when they find out there's going to be an indictment against them when they didn't even know they broke a law. You know, in my case, I got, 400, I got asked for 430 years because they took every count, every trade, that my brokers did and made it an individual 10-year sentence when I gave one order to execute a trade. So instead of saying he had one count, they went in with 43, asking for 10 years on each. My case was really about, not to bore your audience, my case was really about my refusal as CEO to allow an illegal surveillance operation by the federal government without, without a FISA warrant or without executive authority from the president. 
I've said it publicly on television. I've said it everywhere I can since I've been out. So what I like to say is not only are there a lot of innocent people who go to jail, but there are people who refuse to break the law who get sent to jail. The guys who do break the law get sovereign immunity. And you've seen that come out in the last couple of years. Now, the other thing that, unfortunately, so many people face, including her sons and his friends, forget about what a federal judge sentences you to or a state judge sentences you. When you come out of prison, the legislatures have decided on something called collateral consequences, okay, civil disabilities. So there are 40,000 additional penalties placed on both state and federal ex-felons that are legislated in each of the states. Now, the 40,000 is an accumulation of the 50 states. So depending upon where you live, there's a whole bunch of other things that you have a lifetime ban on. You know, at a federal level, if you're a federal convict, a federal ex-con, you are permanently, permanently take stripped of your Second Amendment right to bear arms, even if firearms weren't involved in your case, even if it wasn't a violent crime. And the only way you ever get that right back is with a presidential pardon. Now, tell, give me a break. We have 280,000 people a year in federal prison at any time, okay? And we have 25% as many waiting to go in and 25% on probation or what they call paper in the federal system. So do you think the president's ever going to go through those cases? So what you're essentially saying is you lose your constitutional rights forever. In most states, including Colorado, where I looked on the website uh, on this issue, you lose your professional licenses. And you have to then reapply. And a lot of states, you can't reapply for five to ten years after you finished your probation time. So if you have any kind of professional license, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a dentist, whether you're an accountant, whether you're a stockbroker, whether you're a barber, okay, you can't go back into that profession. So when these guys get out and they're middle-aged, what do you think is going to happen to them? And these are people who go into prison with a career. The poor guys who start in the central cities and barely get through school and get caught up in the drug trade, they have no chance when they come out. Nobody will employ them, and that's why you have a recidivism rate for those folks of about 80%. They will end up in prison again within three to five years. And we uh, want to uh, bring another caller on um, to let uh, have a comment about some things that uh, that were said. Uh, we have Carolyn that is from Austin, and uh, she wants to make a comment. Uh, Carolyn, are you with us? All right, Carolyn, are you there? And uh, apparently a little bit of technical difficulties. Carolyn, yeah. are you with us? Okay, I am. Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you now. Go ahead with your comment. You got me? Okay, so I just want to I want to just add my support to this without taking up too much time that I believe, as the previous caller said, if enough of us come together, we can see change in our time. I believe that. I saw it with the, uh, I'm a little bit younger, but with the movement in the 60s and 70s and coming into that and labeled a half-breed and all of that, now we don't even, these young kids don't know that term. And so I've seen great changes, though I've been caught up as her son has been myself. I'm now X'd out. I can't get mace. I'm scaring myself with a knife. These guys still don't want to keep their hands to themselves, but I still believe in change. Right. We will bring change. There's no question. We will bring change. But it has to be focused. That's that's the issue. The change has to be focused. We can talk about it. There's 
there's hundreds of different forms of injustice. Joe's touched on a lot of them. You, you've got to go with the low-hanging fruit. You have to go with the no-brainers first. And that's okay. why I have this laser focus on faulty eyewitness identification, the leading contributing cause to wrongful convictions. That's the first one that we got to get solved on a national level. Then sure. you move on to the next one. It's like doing triage. But you can't, you can't try to change them all at once. There's, it lacks focus, and it, nothing will get done. Sure, and I, uh, I think, and Carolyn, thank you for your call tonight, uh, and we appreciate all the support. It, it, something's catching on here, Cliff, Lisa, Mr. Nacho, and, and Charles. Something seems to be catching on, and I don't know if it's in the water or the fact that mm-hmm. fall is setting uh, in across the United States, but I'll tell you this. The information, Mr. Nacho and Charles, that you're giving, and then down to the caller, uh, stating that th- we have to come together. Uh, uh, Carolyn made that point. The truth made that point. This is an epidemic out of control. It's kind of like right. you go into a city and, you know, chaos is everywhere. And people say, well, how do we stop the chaos? People are running rampantly looking for an answer. It's transformed all the way to Capitol Hill. It transforms some people like you, Mr. Nacho, who has lived the horror of injustice. The RP6 lived the horror of injustice. Uh, uh, Charles, you fight for those who have lived the horror of injustice. This is what this is about, and this is what needs to happen, the dialogue, the communication, the talking. We talked earlier about the passion. Why is that passion so prevalent in this country right now? Because people are dying as a result of injustice. People are committing suicide and incarcerated in prison who are incarcerated because of injustice. There's a lot of injustice going on, and, and, and to Charles' point, yeah, we got a lot of, you know, we don't throw the, 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 the baby out with the bathwater, but I'll tell you what. Lately here, as, as, as Mr. Carrick alluded to, the last 10 years, it's a consistent growth of injustice. Right. It's not an isolated incident. We see it almost every day in this country. And injustice with no accountability, that is, that what, is the key. That is what the biggest issue is, is that we see, we see uh, people who are part of the justice system, and whatever part, if you're from a police officer to a DA to a uh, federal prosecutor to a federal or a state judge to a Supreme Court judge, if we get, if we get a, uh, you know, basically a culture in sure. the criminal justice system that says the culture is not about justice, it's about numbers. Uh, Joe, you mentioned earlier about the federal prosecutor having a 98% Success rate. I've said before on this show that the only thing in nature, in history, that has a 98% success rate is the sun because it goes on eclipse about where every 100 years. There is nothing else there. If, if the right. system was right. that perfect, that it was 98%, everything on the planet would be based off the way that the American justice system is laid out. And that the fact that they get a 98% success rate says that there is something wrong there well, needs to be some oversight some accountability this this immunity really needs to be thrown out and yeah. we really need to go these prosecutors who are doing it on purpose obviously they're good ones good prosecutors sure. good judges the ones who do it as just to say i'm getting a conviction by false testimony by uh introducing sure. false evidence they need to be dealt with and they need to be dealt with swiftly and mr nacho and let, charles let, go ahead i, go I ahead. wanted to give you guys two statistics that you might be find interesting to make the point that, you know, puts an exclamation point on what we've been saying. American spending on criminal justice went from $33 billion in 1980 mm-hmm. to $216 billion by 2010. That's an wow. increase of 660%. Now, let me ask you a question. I, I was alive before 1980, and I'm clearly still alive now. 
are Americans that much more evil today than we were back then? Absolutely not. No, <laughs> right. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, the crime rate has decreased. Well, that, yeah. no, that's what the politicians tell you. Okay. Well, uh, these are these are FBI. Well, no, no, I understand. I don't, I don't. The, the, you're right. The crime rate has decreased. The rate, but the number of crimes absolutely has gone up, or else you wouldn't well, be spending this capita. money. It's per capita. So right. Now, let me give you the other statistic, which you'll find interesting. Uh, this this statistic comes out of the Human Rights Watch from 2012. It was the last time they put it together. Between 2007 and 2010, the number of imprisoned men and women 65 years and older, okay, senior citizens, grandmas and grandpas, grew by more than 90 times the rate of the total prison population. So wow. are, are we, well, why are all these nan, gran, grannies and grandpas turning to crime? Yeah, what is the... Well, yeah, yeah, at the twilight Well, years. we have an aging population, for one. Yeah, so, yeah, well, you yeah. have an aging population, but what you have is you have the criminalization of all these civil issues. Absolutely. Like the one Bernie was talking about, about a guy, somebody fishing, and comes up with the wrong amount of fish of the wrong size, it becomes criminal. Uh, there's a whole set of things that you wouldn't imagine are criminal that are now, have been criminalized, both by the state and the feds. So more yeah. and more people are getting trapped. But, but think about somebody... Look, I just counseled the guy who was 78 years old, got caught up in a federal accounting thing. He was already retired, and I told him to take a plea bargain. Uh, you know, I, I said, look, you have no chance going up against the feds. Uh, you know, th they're going to get you one way or another. You know, you're 78. Minimize. He said, well, will they really convict me if I'm 78? I said, what, are you kidding? Yeah. Well, let, me, let me tell you about the number of uh, senior citizens I met in prison. And I got him to take a plea deal, and he fortunately got a very low sentence, a relatively short sentence. Um, you know, but he thought he was innocent. They're going after all kinds of people. It's because we've overcriminalized it, and not, and most of us don't know about these cases because you know you hear okay. about the, you know you hear about the extreme case, the, you know the ones that you know the great work being done, let's say by Project Innocence with DNA. But for every one of those guys and women who get exonerated, there's tens uh, there's of thousands in prison that don't have a chance. Well, wow. right. matter of fact, this, no this Judge Rakoff that Carrick was talking about out of New York, he estimates that between one and eight percent of all felons are actually innocent. Now you have a population of two and a half million people in prison in this country in any given day. That means you have somewhere between, by his statistic, somewhere between thirty thousand and two hundred and fifty, a quarter million innocent people in prison at any given time. Well, there, and you know, there's 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 a distinction that also needs to be made because we we always tend to talk about um, you know guilt and innocence as if it's black and white. And the fact of the matter is, you know, there are shades of gray that we that the general public really is just not in tune with. And we have folks. I mean, the, the thing about it is, you can be you know there, you can be guilty of offense A and innocent of uh, offense B, C, and D. The problem is, what happens is, because the odds are so daunting, because cases get so overcharged, that we have folks that actually plead guilty to offenses they didn't commit. So here's an example. You've got a prosecutor that overcharges a case, and they, they secure an indictment on five counts, A, B, C, D, E. And so if you look at the cumulative exposure, say it's 30 years, Prosecutor comes to, to the defendant and says, I'll tell you what, if you plead to offense A and C, which has exposure of five years, we'll dispose of the case. When sure. in fact, 
the defendant's only guilty of offense A. The defendant's not completely innocent, okay? But they're only guilty of offense A. And that's the only offense that they should be found responsible for. So what happens is that defendant pleads to offense A and C, and, and he serves five years. Now, if he was only found guilty of offense A, maybe he only had two years of exposure. So in my estimation, what our prisons are full of are inmates that essentially are serving phantom sentences. They're mm -hmm. serving sentences for phantom crimes. So in right. the case that I decided, after the first two years of incarceration, that, that inmate is now serving the next three years for a crime he or she did not commit. Now they, they they paid their price for the for the one they did do, and they did the two years for that. But then they're they're sitting there, and our prisons that are already overcrowded, that our courtrooms that are already overburdened, are full of those kinds of cases. And these are not folks that are 100% innocent or 100% guilty. They're they are guilty of something in some cases, of a count, a few counts, just not everything that they've either been convicted of or that they've pled to. Yeah, that's a very significant distinction. There's a sure. lot of folks in prison that fall into those ca into that category. And yeah, well, I would put that in the second privatization category. Of, privatization of state prisons. It doesn't happen, it hasn't happened in the federal system. But on a state level, most prisons now are going private. And if they're not already private, if you look at the services, be it you know the, the commissary, be it the phone system in there, be it the some of the security, it's all been privatized. It is big, profitable business. Yeah, and uh, Joe, you uh, you had a comment uh, on that. What was that? You know, I was going to say that you got you got to kind of you've got to kind of uh, set up cohorts of prisoners. Okay, I was talking, and, and what Charles was just talking about is another important category. Those are people who did some crime, pled to something. The judge knows they probably did other things and hit some harder, mm -hmm. and, and that's not fair. I was talking about the ones who, who, if you had an honest trial about it, would actually be innocent. And you still right, think sure. you got about 8% of your total pop prison population in there, which could be a quarter million people. You know, there's a wow. saying in the prison system um, that says, we build prisons for people we fear, but we fill them with people we're mad at. Wow. Okay? Yeah, that's and, crazy. And, and most of our criminal justice system is about emotion. It's yeah. about government emotion. The government doesn't want to look bad, so they go hammer somebody really hard to make an example. Yeah, and that was my case with the NSA. In your cases, yeah. you can name hundreds of them. So mm -hmm. you, 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 we've completely distorted the idea of justice. We've distorted yeah. the respect for law, and that is what's going to erode and eat away at our democracy. Well, um, you know, part of the problem, Joe, too, is we ever since the 90s, you know, we we got away from a rehabilitation model in U.S. prisons, and we went to a punishment model, and that's that's where we are now. We've been for oh, the yeah. last There's no 25 years, we've been in the punishment model phase. And the, the, the problem is that if you look at the statistics between the, the, the rehabilitation model and the, and the punishment model, the recidivism rate is almost identical. And so... Mm -hmm. Clearly, if we're going to shift and go back to a rehabilitation model, we've got to do something different because we weren't doing we weren't rehabilitating folks before, and so right. we still don't have the answer to that piece. Well, I but think it can't to, be to what me. it can't be what it is now because what it is now obviously doesn't work. 
Well, see, right. that's why I'm, I'm, I take a different, a slightly different approach. I don't. I think that issue is almost insolvable, okay, because of both political ec- and forces and things people don't know. But if you if you cut down the, the number, if you if you decriminalize America, okay, if you cut the number of criminal statutes by a third or a half, okay, you you, you stop the inflow. Then you can spend right. whatever resources you have to really do it right. Because look, make no mistake, in prison there's a lot of bad guys. There's a lot of people who do violent crimes. Sure. There's a lot of really bad people. And they got to be treated humanely, too. But there's also a lot of innocent people and people who don't belong there who get sentences that are outrageous for their, their offenses. And, sure. of course, we have the system of vengeance uh, that, you know, we have the theory of vengeance that underpins our criminal justice system. Um, so I, you know, de- I'm, I'm de- for taking like a big a, a decriminalize. I know that. Cut, cut all the sunset all of our laws and make them pass I, them again I agree. if they think they're but, realistic. But, but here's the challenge, Joe: is in doing so, who who decriminalize? Who changes those laws? Legislators. Yeah. Legislators have to be elected. Yeah. No legislator desirous of staying in office or achieving office is going yeah, right, to ever but, sponsor that kind of legislation. It, it's but Joe, here's time. the problem: we built a permanent political class who believes the only thing that's important is getting elected. You know, there's a huge difference between totally leadership, okay, and just responding to the will of the people. Our founding fathers believed, and I think it was John Adams who famously said it, you know, he, he, they believed that, you know, all things shouldn't be voted on by people. This is why you have elected officials, because leadership requires a lot more character than the emotions at the time. You know, the, the big debate at the time of this republic being formed between Adams and Jefferson Jefferson admired the French and kind of a, what was going on with the French Revolution, a unicommal, uh, uh, a unicommal government. Adams said, no, we want the government split in three with equal powers because men will inherently do bad things. Okay? And, and that was a big fight because you don't want to play to the emotions of the population at any given time. Okay? Well, and, and, and they debated well, that for eight kind years. Of what the Pope, it's kind of what the Pope tried to do. When you it's exactly what the Pope was saying. Do the right thing. You have a higher calling here. Do the right well, thing. Yeah. By the way, leadership requires you to do things sometimes that aren't popular. That's one of the sure. problems with our politicians right now. They want to take a poll on everything. So we need political leaders who are willing to say, this is eroding the core of our democracy. This is injustice across our society. We're going to step out and fix it. Matter of fact, you've got two people in the Senate who are trying to do that. They get nowhere with it. One is Rand Paul from uh, Kentucky, and the other is uh, Cory Booker right here from New Jersey. Okay? Mm-hmm. A, a very conservative Republican, a very liberal Democrat. They see it. You just can't build the critical mass because we don't have that kind of leadership. Now, that mm-hmm. woman who called in was right. We got, what you guys are doing, the uh, reason I'm volunteering my time here, is I think this is wonderful. You need a grassroots mobilization to make this an issue. Absolutely. And I'll tell you this right and that's, now. That's part of, Charles, and I'll tell you this. We're, we're, we're approaching the end of the, of the show. Folks, uh, I tell you what, Mr. Nacho and Charles, uh, this dialogue doesn't stop here. Uh, we're going to have to uh, get, set it up where, we, where you guys be willing to come back on AJC Radio because this topic, you can't get into the depth of it in two hours because it is that big of an issue in this country. Would you folks be willing to come back as, upon our invitation? Sure. Certainly. Okay, and I'll tell you right now, folks, uh, Mr. Nacho, thank you so much for taking time. We're going to be actually be in touch with you uh, offline 
Uh, also, okay. Charles, I'll be in touch with you offline as well. Uh, this is this is about this is about a unit, uh, a effort, uh, as Carolyn said, as the truth said, as Agency Radio said, as Mr. Nacho, Charles, as you said, that's going to take us coming together and our voices being heard. And I'll tell you what, uh, we've taken a significant step in that tonight. We are honored. Uh, that you guys took some time with us tonight, Charles and, and Mr. Nacho. Thank you so very much. I'll give you an opportunity to give your folks any contact information for you, Mr. Nacho. You can put it out there to our listeners if they're interested in contacting you. Uh, the best way to do it would be come through you guys. Okay, no worries there. And I want to thank you for inviting me on your program. No, then that's fine. If you can hang on, we definitely want to talk to you a little bit shortly after the show. Is that okay if we could get a hold of you? Yeah, you want to just call me back? We'll, we'll call you back, and Charles, uh, you'll, you'll be sure. here. For me, it's at, at, on Twitter, at DefenseMind, at DefenseMind. Okay, there you go. And uh, we're going to be tweeting and doing all the good stuff that social media does. Uh, Mr. Nacho, uh, the best to you, and again, we'll be in touch. Charles, the best to you. It has been a privilege tonight, and I think America's a little more informed tonight yes. on this fall night in America. Thank you, folks, for joining us. We will be in touch shortly after the show, okay? Right. Thank you. Good night. Pleasure. Okay, good night. take care. And, uh Ladies and gentlemen of America, there you have it. Uh, you know, if you have a fireplace, uh, it should be on high. As a result, Lisa, of that conversation, uh, Mr. Nacho uh, talking from what he has lived, Charles talking from his perspective. Man, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? No, that was, yeah, that was some very uh, interesting conversation there. Absolutely. And the truth, uh, as always, adds that, that level of thought-provoking, if you will, that makes you stop and think. This is important. Folks, you better tell everybody as, as the fall sets in, you're going to be home in a comfortable evening, maybe a little cool outside. You won't be able to go out and do those activities. Join the evening with us here on AJC Radio because we're going to be definitely talking about some things that matter to you, to your children, and to America. And, boy, this has been good. And we're going to, they've all agreed, Cliff, to come on back with us. Go ahead and uh, uh, as we, uh, give your closing thoughts, and go ahead and let's get ready to shut this down as much as we hate to do so. Yeah, I mean, this is a great conversation to have uh, someone who who is uh, they've spent most of their life uh, defending people. And Charles, and then to, to see Mr. Nacho, who uh, who has spent time behind behind the wall after being a CEO of, like I said, the largest telecom company, and then to to see exactly what can happen to you in this criminal justice system you know if if you think that you can't afford that uh you know if you have the money you can defend yourself against the federal government think about this situation and when they come after you yeah what is the possibility of you getting out of it man great conversation can't wait to uh to get them back on we won't we go ahead and and one second cliff uh we want to give a special thanks to bernard terrick who joined us tonight uh we appreciate him taking time tonight man this has been informative but this show and all the shows that we do are dedicated to the RP6 who are wrongfully convicted as a result of the need of criminal justice reform because they have been victims of the lack thereof. Gary Walker, David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, and Clinton Stewart, the RP6. This show goes out and is dedicated to them. And there are people responsible who are the perpetrators, we call them, of justice that are responsible for the wrongful conviction. Lisa, who are they? We have U.S. Attorney John Walsh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch, Assistant U.S. Attorney Sunita Hazra, Attorney Greg Goldberg, Federal Judge Christine Arguello, Appellate Judge Jerome Holmes, Appellate Judge Bobby Baldock, Appellate Judge Harris Hart, Federal Judge R. Brooke Jackson, Magistrate Judge Craig Schaefer, Court Reporter Darlene Martinez, FBI Agent John Smith, FBI Agent Robert Moen, Former Federal Agent John Epke, former Federal Agent Gary Hilberry, 
Attorney Thomas Goodread, Attorney Clifford Barnard, Attorney Thomas Richard, Attorney Robert Berger, Attorney Mitchell Baker, Attorney Boston Stanton Jr., Attorney Rick Kornfeld, Attorney Mark Garrigo, Susan Holland of ETI Professional Services, and last but certainly not least, Samuel K. Thurman, who was one of the worst traders in history. Thank you, and uh, I'll tell you this real quick, Cliff, before you sign off. Uh, go ahead, Cliff. Go ahead and give our thanks to the folks real quick. Yeah, we want to say thank you to everyone in the chat room. All your questions and comments are very well appreciated. Also, the callers, thank you for the uh, fiery uh, you know, conversation we had tonight. We want to say again thank you to Charles Middlestat. Uh, Mr. Bernard Carrick and Mr. Joseph Pinaccio. We appreciate you guys taking time out of your evening to spend with us. To our production team, Captain Kyle and Dustin Jacksons of K&D Productions, helping out the Honeycomb kids tonight, making sure everything is taken care of so that you can hear what it is that we have to say. Also, to the production support team, they give us accurate and up-to-date information so that we can pass that on to you. And to the truth, we know you're out there. We appreciate it. Well, ladies and gentlemen of America, as Congressman Jim Sensenbrenner recently wrote, the rationale, the rational voter rather needs little persuasion. For the past 30 years, our federal prison population has quadrupled from 1980 population of 500,000 inmates to more than 2.3 million incarcerated human beings today. Over that same period, prison spending has surged up almost 600 percent. We waste 25 percent of the Justice Department's budget on the nation's Bloated penal machinery. Imagine where else that 25% could go to roads, to railroads, to schools, to healthcare, to the improvement rather than the degradation of human life. This is AJC Radio signing off across America. Criminal justice reform. We're just getting started. Good night, America. Good night. This week, the issue of criminal justice reform, who goes to prison in America, hit a kind of critical mass with action from President Obama in Congress and on presidential campaigns. As part of our Broken Justice series, our Lisa Desjardins lays out the reform movement that both Republicans and Democrats are pushing, and which some in law enforcement want to push back. It was a symbol intended to spark sweeping change. The first ever visit by a sitting U.S. president to a federal prison. President Obama's walk today through the El Reno facility outside Oklahoma City capped off his week-long push on what he called a broken criminal justice system. These are young people who made mistakes that aren't that different than the mistakes I made and the mistakes that a lot of you guys made. Monday, the president commutes sentences for 46 drug offenders. Tuesday, at the NAACP National Convention in Philadelphia, the president speaks to the racial disparity within the prison population. African Americans and Latinos make up 30% of our population. They make up 60% of our inmates. About one in every 35 African American men, one in every 88 Latino men is serving time right now. Among white men, that number is one in 214. President Obama is adding his voice to a bipartisan call for reform of the criminal justice system. Today, Republican presidential hopeful and New Jersey Governor Chris Christie released this plan to educate prisoners. If we're going to incarcerate people, then we should make them do something productive, not just sit around and watch TV all day. One solution is to require inmates to try and get their GED before release, so they have some minimum qualifications. 
Reforming criminal justice is on the radar of nearly all those who would be president. In the past few months, 18 of the current 20 presidential candidates have argued for some kind of change. Up on Capitol Hill, ideas have made it into a group of bills that are moving towards floor votes. A House Oversight Committee hearing this week reviewed a number of reform proposals, including a bill sponsored by Senate Republican John Cornyn. It costs $30,000 a year to incarcerate an individual in prison and less than $8,000 keep them on pre-release custody like home confinement and the like. Watching the hearing, Mark Holden, the lawyer for the Republican mega-donors, the Koch brothers. They're also part of the movement. Coke Industries, along with Target, Home Depot, and Walmart, have all banned the box or removed questions about past convictions on company job applications. It is the latest move in decades of debate over how to stop crime. Today, there's a new epidemic, smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. The emergence of crack cocaine in the 1980s and the war on drugs led to widespread lock-em-up policies for drug offenders. Democrats were also tough on crime. President Clinton's 1994 crime bill lengthened sentences for nonviolent criminals while pouring nearly $10 billion into prisons. The result? The number of people behind bars skyrocketed from 500,000 in 1980 to more than 2.2 million today.